Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. I am so excited to talk about today's topic. Um, I don't, I'm not just saying that this morning, like I legitimately am so excited. This is uh, something that I've, I've just been really pumped to talk about with you guys. Um, as you guys know, we are continuing a series called The Life of Christ, and we are going through the events of Mark. And if you read Mark, one thing that you'll notice is a majority of Mark is made up of Jesus's adult ministry, in particular, his miracles and the things that he did, proving that he was, uh, he was God in flesh, but also the events of the Passion or the Holy Week or the week that takes place leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. These are some of the most significant and uh, a lot of ink is spilled in terms of chronicling these events, okay? So as we're going through the book of Mark, the last three of our messages are going to be focusing on the events of the Passion Week. And in particular, we are going to be talking about the Last Supper tonight, or this morning, excuse me. So this morning, we're going to be in Mark 14. But before we get there, we actually have to get into the Old Testament. And I know what you're thinking, Kevin, we're in the Gospels. Why do we need to go back to the Old Testament? Well, if you've ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a great introduction to reading your Bible, it says every word whispers his name. It is all about Jesus. Your Bible that's sitting in front of you or that's on your phone is all about Jesus. And Jesus's name is never really explicitly stated in the Old Testament. So how could that be? How could that be? Well, we're going to be talking in particular about the Passover and the new Passover. That's going to be our topic for today. And this morning, we are going to be talking about a significant Jewish holiday, the Passover, and in particular, the last legitimate Passover. Yes, you heard that right. The last legitimate Passover. And we'll specifically be in Exodus 12 and Mark 14, 17 through, through 26. But before I really get into it, I want to talk about why this is relevant today. Why would talking about an ancient Jewish holiday be relevant to you, a college student at the University of Oklahoma or O-Trip or, Tulsa, uh, or you know, Norman Tech or any of these things? Why would it be relevant to you today? Well, I think it's really important to talk about the fact that the Passover meal celebrated the deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt, and in particular, the salvation of the Jews from the 10th plague, okay? Essentially, there was this salvation by substitute. There was this salvation by substitute. That phrase is going to be very important today, okay? Salvation provided by substitution. And the point of the 10th plague was that the God of the Jews, not the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped, was holy and just. But the Passover proved that the same God was also merciful. So purpose of the 10th plague was to prove that God is holy and just. The purpose of the Passover is to also prove his character that he is merciful, okay? So the 10th plague took, uh, basically what happened was it took the firstborn of each household unless there was sacrificial lamb's blood above the door. And God spared the homes whose blood had that blood, uh, homes of the doors that had that blood over them, okay? And it wasn't because these people within the houses were better. 
It wasn't because they were Israelites, but it was because God provided a way of salvation that existed outside of them. God provided a way of salvation that existed outside of them. There was nothing that they could do that could earn their salvation by the way that they lived or even their heritage, but it was that God provided a way through the sacrificial blood of a lamb. See, friends, there's nothing that the Israelites did that earned their salvation. There's nothing that earned their mercy. God made a way to provide a way to salvation. Similarly, similarly today, there is nothing we can do to earn mercy. There is nothing we can do to earn mercy from God. We're all sinners. We've all messed up. We can all look in the mirror and say, I am not perfect. We can all look in the mirror and see that we are not without blemish. We have messed up in some way and we need a lamb to die in our place. And my goal today is to see that the good news is that God has provided a permanent way to be restored back to him, a permanent propitiation for our sins. And we're going to talk about that word propitiation. It's going to be very important today, but essentially it's uh, averting God's wrath by the offering of a gift. Okay, averting God's wrath by the offering of a gift. And we'll see that the history and shadows of the Old Testament point to the fulfillment and the glory of the New Testament, and in particular, the work that Jesus did on the cross and the new covenant that he ensued. So let's take a look at Exodus 12. That's where we're going to be. And just a, a historical overview of this Passover. So you know what's going on. It's a, it's a phrase you may have heard before, but what actually is it? Well, the festival of the Passover, if you ever want to learn what it was, what they did, you can read about it in this chapter. This is where God institutes it, how Moses and Aaron, they are basically given the orders of this is how it's supposed to look like. And they were given certain specifications on what it should be. But all in all, it was a memorial of remembrance of what God had done for the Israelites in Egypt. It was a memorial of remembrance for what God had done for the Israelites in Egypt. It was a sign of remembrance that God had provided salvation by substitute. And this is what the Israelites were remembering, these events. Exodus 12, verse 12 says this, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And this is where we get the phrase Passover. This is where we get the phrase Passover. It says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you pass over you. Here we see God is recounting with Moses and Aaron what it is they're remembering with this festival. Now, how many times in our culture do we celebrate something? We forget the reason why we're celebrating it in the first place. Think of Christmas, right? Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because Christmas is a great time to celebrate the virtue of generosity, right? Celebrate the virtue of family, and Santa Claus. We celebrate him too. No, the purpose of Christmas was to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What about Valentine's Day, right? That's about celebrating love and kinship. 
oh, no, it was actually a memorial for the martyrs of Christianity? That's interesting. Wait, what about, what about Easter? Easter, that's all about the bunny, right? That's all, about, that's all about hunting eggs, right? I don't get that one. I don't know how Easter went from the resurrection of Christ to hunting Easter eggs and celebrating a big bunny. That doesn't make any sense to me, guys. I don't know how that happened, but it's really weird and really strange. But that's what happens over time is we forget why we're even celebrating. We just do it because it's tradition. We just do it because it's happening. And Jesus, when he institutes the new Passover, wants to make sure we remember what it is we're celebrating by using specific methods and specific ways to remind us of what he did for us on the cross. And so regardless, the events of this Passover meal and festival were to serve as a reminder of God's mercy on the Israelites, that it had nothing to do with the celebration of them saying, man, look how good we did when we were slaves. Look how obedient and faithful we were as slaves. In fact, they weren't. We see in other parts of scripture that they were worshiping idols even when they were enslaved in Egypt. So it wasn't based on their righteousness that God saved them, but it was based solely on the fact that God is a merciful God and he provided a way of salvation, not anything that they did. So whenever they celebrate Passover, they're not celebrating what they did. What are they celebrating? What God did. They're celebrating what God did. And that is so, so cool. But what's interesting, friends, is there is a tension in all of this. There is a tension in all of this. Animals' blood alone cannot forgive all sin. Animals' blood alone cannot forgive all sin. Hebrews 10.4 states this tension. And it says that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And Paul in Romans 3.25 says that in God's forbearance or patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So the sacrifices that the Israelites were doing was a temporary means to stave off God's eventual punishment, but it did not forgive them of their sin. But Jesus fulfills the Passover. Jesus fulfills the Passover. See, God recognized this tension. He saw that there was a tension and he decided that he would provide a way of salvation. He would provide a way of salvation, but this time it would satisfy the punishment that sinners deserve. It would satisfy the wrath of God. See, Romans 3.23, just a few verses before 3.25, says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means all of us in this room, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all messed up and deserve God's wrath. We are not naturally good people and then sin, but we are predisposed to sin and we are predisposed to live a sinful life and we willingly choose to run away from God. And we have all sinned. And because of our sin, we fall short of the glory of God. And God says that what we earn in Romans 6, 23, that the wage that we earn for our sin is eternal death. Eternal separation, physical and eternal death is the just due for what we have chosen to live or how we have chosen to live. That's an important thing to remember, friends, because you have never met a good person. Sometimes we overestimate and say, well, I deserve this. Or why did this person get this? I'm a, I'm a better person than them. I live a better life. But what we deserve 
is not God's mercy. What we deserve is not God's grace. What we deserve is God's wrath. But God, in his loving kindness, provided a way for all who would follow him, all who would repent from their sin and believe in him as their Lord and Savior, would be able to be restored back to him. God provided a way. See, the blood of Christ for all who would believe in him would essentially pass over those who believe in him. God's wrath would pass over those who have trusted in Christ. That's how Jesus fulfills the Passover. See, this is what I was talking about earlier when I mentioned Jesus was God's propitiation. Propitiation means averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. And let's see a few examples in 1 John where we see this truth play out. 1 John 2.2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's wrath. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's how powerful God's sacrifice through Jesus Christ was. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, Hebrews 10, which presented the problem that goats and bulls weren't enough, it continues in verse 12 and it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What I want you guys to get is that God made a way for sin and the judgment that we deserve to be passed over because of the blood of Christ that was spilled for all who would believe in him. It was his plan all along and allows you and it allows me to know God personally, to have a relationship with him. We can be in the presence of a holy God because God's wrath, God's justice was satisfied, satisfied in the payment on the cross in his son. And that's good news. That is good news for anyone who would believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, this morning, I hope to have your nose in the Bible more than looking at me, because we are going to be looking at this passage and really trying to discern the meaning of what, what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples, okay? I hope that we can visualize what is going on, what's taking place as Jesus is spending his last meal with the disciples. It is a beautiful and sad circumstance. So we're going to start in verse 17. But before we do, I want to throw up our theme verse of this section, okay? It is 2 Corinthians 5, 7b. And this is Paul talking about Jesus as the Passover lamb. And he says, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So the purpose of the new Passover, that is what we will be seeing. And Christ as the Passover lamb, what is the significance of that? I'm hoping after seeing that Jesus fulfills the shadow of the old Passover that we can look now to see the purpose of the new Passover. What I will do is read the passage as a whole and then we can break it down to discern its meaning together, okay? So we're gonna start in verse 17. It says this, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to, said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. 
The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And then he had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So let's begin with verses 17 through 18a. And it says, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12 while they were reclining at the table eating. Okay, so let's set the context. What is happening here? So in the four gospel accounts, we see this event chronicled. We see this event, uh, and basically what happens is a lot of stuff happens at this Passover meal. And if you are participating in the Passover meal, one of the things that is really important is that you were given a lamb to consume. The priests would sacrifice it, burn portions of it at the altar, and then give you eat to celebrate with. And usually it would be anywhere from 10 to 20 people. And there were 13 people, the 12 disciples and Jesus, who were tasked with, with eating this lamb. That is a lot of meat to consume, okay? And so they are eating this lamb. And we see that this last supper takes place from before sunset all the way past midnight. So they are here for, the, for a long time. So this, you know, it's only, what, 10 verses or so, but this is taking place over a long period of time, okay? And if we look at the other gospel accounts, we see things that take place are the meal itself, Judas exposed as a betrayer, the disciples asking who's the greatest, Jesus promising the Holy Spirit, and some other events as well. So we can deduce that this is a very long meal. So when you're picturing this, don't picture Jesus sitting down, eating the food, and then dipping out, okay? That's not how it happened. It was a lot longer. It was a lot more intimate. And when we look at the disciples, it says they were reclining at the table eating. When you were to participate in something like this, you wouldn't put your legs under the table. But in fact, you would recline with your feet facing away from the table and your head facing toward the table because you were going to be there for a while. Okay, so they wanted to get comfortable, and so it was a more intimate setting than, than what you might have imagined. Moving forward in verse 18, Jesus makes an alarming revelation, okay? In Jewish culture, it was so intimate to invite someone and to share a meal with them. It was the ultimate sign of friendship and kinship. And so for Jesus to say this, in the midst of one of the most safe and secure environments would have been extremely alarming to the disciples. And we'll see in a moment that the reaction says, says, says so. So he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And the disciples, they're shocked. What do they say in verse 19? They were saddened. Some versions say they were grieved. The word here is astonishing grief. Okay, that is what it translates to. It is this agonizing feeling of how could this be? And so the disciples, one by one, they don't immediately deduce that it's Judas. What do they say instead? Surely, surely not me, right? Surely you don't mean me. See, the disciples were just like us. They knew that they were sinners. They knew that they were capable of evil. 
They knew they were, making, they were capable of making the wrong choice at the wrong time. And so they have this incredulous surprise of surely you don't mean me. See, it was hidden from them and they had no idea that Judas would be the one that betrays them. But Jesus says that this will happen, that one of them will betray them. Psalm 55 describes the events that transpire here. It says, For it is not an enemy who approaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of the God. They had no idea it was Judas, but Judas knew. He had done such a good job hiding his evil that the other disciples were unaware of his eventual betrayal. Imagine, he had done all this ministry with the disciples. He had been feeding the poor with them. He had been casting out demons alongside the other disciples. He had been doing the work of the ministry that the other disciples were doing. He was one of them. And so they were so shocked that it could be one of them. But Jesus confirms this in verse 20. It is one of the 12, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Judas would be the one who would betray Jesus. And this was not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus was God. This was not a surprise that this was going to happen. He says, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. Jesus died, not according to Judas's plan, not according to the Sanhedrin's plan, not according to Pilate's plan. He died according to God's plan that was foretold in the prophets. It was always the plan. It was always the plan. So there we encounter a problem. Right? We encounter a tension that we have to deal with, and that tension is the problem of Judas. In verse 21, we have the most intense verse in maybe all of Scripture that talks about human responsibility. And we can get caught up in talking about the sovereignty of God, but in his sovereignty, God has held humans responsible for their willing actions. Verse 21 says, Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Because God used Judas does not exonerate Judas. God can and does use every human that rejects him for his kingdom purposes. Nothing, not even a sinner, not even Judas can change or edit the plan of God. Nothing can stop God's plan. John MacArthur shares this thought about Judas. He says, Judas, like any rejecter, like any sinner, acts on his own motives, acts on his own choice, acts by his own will as a result of his own mental machinations and the drivings of his own evil lusts. He operates on his own greed and his own selfishness and his own materialism, and he betrays Christ and he works it all out. Yet everything he does is fit by God into a divinely chosen part of God's plan so that Judas plays a crucial role in the death of Christ, just as God designs. See, nothing could thwart God's plan. 
And just like Jesus' betrayal, everything surrounded the pa- surrounding the passion would occur and would, cons- uh, would, would occur like it was written, like it was predicted. Nothing was out of the control of God. Zechariah 12.10 says, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Psalm 16.10 says, Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay, talking about the resurrection. And Paul makes this plain as day with 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Nothing could thwart God's plan and God's Passover lamb would be provided at the right time for the right purpose for his people. So what does Jesus say in regards to this new Passover? Or as we call it today, the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Now, at this point, you might be thinking if Judas is here and they just predicted his betrayal, it'd be really weird to break bread with the one who's going to betray you. Well, at this time, based on kind of the other accounts of the other gospels, we can deduce that Judas was not here, was not present at this time. It's the other 11 disciples. Judas has already left to give up Jesus to the Sanhedrin. And this is what we see. He says, take it, this is my body. Just like the first Passover... The second is a time to remember the sacrifice that was made for the people's salvation. This sacrifice given by Jesus, his own body, is represented by bread and wine, his body and blood. And a better translation of this passage would actually say, take it, this represents or this means my body. This symbolizes my body. But just because he broke the bread, I want to make this clear, it does not mean his body was broken because that would be in violation of the scriptures and we see that Jesus' bones were not broken. Okay, it makes an important note of that. So just breaking of the bread was a way to share it with the other disciples. Verse 23, then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. So here Jesus ratifies the new covenant. So if you study the Old Testament and you study the, the other covenants, one of the things that you'll see is that every time that God makes a co- covenant or a promise with the people, there is blood that ratifies the covenant. There is blood or a sacrifice that is made to essentially seal the deal, okay? And so Jesus, God in flesh, is ratifying the new covenant, not with the blood of an animal sacrifice, but with his own blood, Okay, this is the first, only, and final time that God's own blood will be shed to sacrifice or to to ratify a covenant. And this is significant because this is the final covenant that God makes with his people. It is the permanent, the final way that God has provided to finally restore his people, to forgive them of their sin and provide a way back to God. This is a momentous time in redemptive history because God has finally made a way through Jesus Christ, his son, to forgive all who would believe in him eternal life. 
And it is only through Jesus. In the Old Testament, you might be thinking, what about those guys? Well, we see in Romans 4 that it was by Abraham's faith that it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't, it was that Abraham did all the right things. It wasn't that, J, that Abraham practiced the law perfectly, but it was always grace through faith alone. It was always grace through faith alone. The way in which God provides salvation for his people has always and will always be grace through faith alone. So the moment we start thinking why we deserve to be saved or what we have done to be saved, we are inching closer and closer and closer to legalism because there is nothing you or I could do to separate ourselves from the love of God and there is nothing we could do to earn God's love. He loves us and he provided a way back to him that existed outside of you, that existed outside of your choice. He made the way, he made the way. It's not our choices, it's not the fact that we choose to live a righteous life, but it's the fact that God has made a way through Jesus Christ, his son, so that we might be saved. Friends, this is good news. This is amazing news. We don't have to hope for a better future because God provides it right here, right now, with God providing a way back to him through the power of the Holy Spirit, to know him personally and intimately. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. This is the best news that we could ever receive, that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, but it's merely God's gift. This is huge. This is so huge. And you know what it means if it's a gift? Then there's nothing you can do to lose it. If there's nothing you can do to earn it, then there is nothing you can do to lose it. Praise God. Praise God. Some of you in this room, right here, right now, might be feeling overwhelming guilt and shame for the sin in your life. You might be thinking, there is no way that God could love me. There is no way that God could love me. You don't know what I've done. Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover all sin. There's nothing you can do to earn God's love. There's no way that you can live a righteous enough life and praise God for that. Praise God for that, that you don't have to do anything to earn his love, that he has provided a way through Jesus, his son, that you could know him today. And if you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you can do that today. You don't have to say, I hope I can do that one day. There's grace for you today. There is grace for you today. And finally, in verse 24, we have hope. We have hope. At this point, we've seen a lot of the sadness that the disciples may have been feeling. Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to die. But we see hope in verse 24. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus here is predicting his future earthly millennial kingdom when he returns. This is sure to be a hopeful part after talking about all this stuff that he's been talking about, betrayal and death. But guys, think about it for a second with me. How beautiful will it be to remember the sacrifice of Lord Jesus with Lord Jesus? That's so amazing and beautiful. 
See, our Lord, he died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. He rose again, ascended into heaven, and one day he is coming back to institute his new earthly kingdom. Friends, when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on that cross. It was God in flesh who died a death that we deserved. How crazy is that? That a God who created the universe would become so low to condescend his very nature to take on flesh and die a death that we deserve? That is crazy. Guys, we can never forget the price that was that was paid on the cross. We can never lose the wonder of the cross. Let's end with a passage that, that the Jews might have um, as they ended the Passover celebration. Psalm 136, 1 through 3, it says this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. Praise God. His love endures forever. His love endures forever.